Restaurants are facing a major labor crunch. Combating that problem isn't very easy. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, executive editor of Restaurant Business Magazine, and in this edition of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Kurt Schnabelt, a managing director in Alix Partners Restaurant Hospitality and Leisure Practice. Kurt and I talk about the factors behind the rising cost of labor and how restaurant chains can pay for those costs without driving customers away. We also talk about the best strategies companies can use to combat the labor shortage and how doing so successfully can help generate sales over the long term. Alex Partners recently completed a survey that found most consumers, including the vast majority of younger millennials, are in favor of a $15 minimum wage. But that same survey also found evidence of a jittery consumer, particularly that young consumer who is fearful for their finances and ability to spend at restaurants. And later in this podcast, I talk about a restaurant chain that is refranchising its units and not necessarily going about it in the right way. But first, here's Kurt. Okay, I am here with Kurt Schnabel. Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Jonathan. Appreciate you having me. Kurt, why haven't I had you on the podcast yet, man? What's my problem? Um, I, listen, I think it's complete neglect on your part, but at the same time, <laughs> I, I, I totally respect the other guys who have been on and I, you know, frankly, I ought to put them first too. All right. Fantastic. So, um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about labor. Um, I, uh, obviously this is a major point of concern for, for restaurant operators. Could you talk about a little bit about how much of a concern labor is at the moment for, for restaurant, for restaurant companies? I'd have to say it's paramount. It's it's the number one margin issue and probably the number one issue, even for those restaurant companies that are doing pretty well on the top line. Um, it, it's eroding value uh, from equity holders. We see it on a year over year basis in some of the high wage states and some of the, the areas where minimum wage has gone to $15 an hour. Really taking such a cut out of um, out of incremental revenues, even when when you're doing well, it takes that cut that you know. Frankly, the equity holders look as you know what their, their economic value add. So instead of economic value add EBITDA going up with revenues going up, you're seeing revenues go up and EBITDA even dropping in some cases, especially in states like Massachusetts or New York and California. It's um, it's alarming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've seen um, recently a couple of um, uh, couple of California chains, Tel Taco and, and and Habit Burger, have had to raise prices fairly aggressively to to match um, you know to match these uh, high higher minimum wages, and they're losing traffic as a result. It's inevitable, Jonathan. The fact of the matter is that strategic pricing has got to be in the toolbox of every operator. And like you mentioned, you know, those guys get hit in California with a sizable wage and you have no choice but to take some price. And whether or not that that some price is one percent or two percent or five percent, you know, God forbid, five percent, um, you you have to take it. But the downside is there are some consumers that just can't afford to to, to absorb that. Right. Their dollars are mm. relatively fixed. And the consumer just has to look at where they can get value. So, you know, and I think just as importantly in our survey recently, we just saw that the consumer is saying, you know, when they define value, they define it more as just raw price rather Mm. than, uh, you know, more food for the money or better quality ingredients, et cetera, which had always vied for, you know, pretty strong spot in that 
in that that definition. But now it's just straight price. So taking big price to combat labor necessary, um, but you got to keep men, uh, value on the menu because some consumers are just going to have to uh, uh, fall into the attrition bucket. Right. It really kind of there's a an odd dynamic here because we have higher wages. I mean, restaurant companies are, are paying higher wages, even not in, even if they are not in a high minimum wage state, we see, you know, intense competition for labor in many markets driving up wages that way. And, um, but at the same time, we have what you mentioned in your survey, a jittery consumer, a consumer that really still has to focus on value. So if, if I'm a restaurant company, I really don't know necessarily what to do because you have to raise prices, but at the same to to meet these higher wages, but at the same time you you have to keep some value on the menu, and it's really causing a lot of problems for operators. Yeah, but I think the operators are really, you know, the the smart ones for sure are really looking left and looking right, and they're realizing um, that that this is a race against a tiger. And you can never outrun the tiger. You just have to outrun the next guy next to you, right? So the reality of it is um, they're going to look around and say, okay, we're in a battle for share. And that battle for share is going to have to have value on the menu. So those with the strongest balance sheets, those with the strongest margins and the ability to uh, absorb some large cost increases in the margins uh, will outrun those that are not prepared for that, especially. And this is this is why you see the, you know, the best practices between the winners and the losers. The losers who have a weak balance sheet or over levered balance sheets just can't afford it. And similarly, those that are living on that razor thin margin of, um, you know, proprietary brands that are that are barely breaking even. Uh, this could kick them over the um, over the edge from profitable to, you know, unprofitable and burn cash. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just yet another lesson. Um, I think for restaurant companies that you have to give yourself some margin for error. And we've seen, especially, uh, you know, we see, and especially when you get these go-go times, like we'd had the last few years with a lot of expansion and that sort of thing, where companies, you know, put a lot of leverage on the balance sheet. They, you know, they say lease back all their locations or they lease all their locations and pay aggressive lease rates and, um, that sort of thing. And, and really don't leave themselves, themselves enough sort of leeway to, you know, to handle these sort of challenges that come up like this. And, and, you know, we've seen some restaurant companies sort of, you know, fall off and file for bankruptcy and, 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 and those sorts of things because of challenges like this. So you just have to give yourself some, some, some margin for error. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, let's face facts too, right? You can either, you can either lever up with on balance sheet debt or you can lever up through off balance sheet debt, i.e. leases, expensive leases or both. And, and frankly, if it's both and your margins are, you know, are, uh, are challenged, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. You should have one or the other. So what, if, if I'm a restaurant company and, and, and I want to, what, what is the best, what do you think there are the best, uh, pricing strategies and how do you get value on your menu while at the same time matching these, um, you know, you, you know, matching these cost increases? Yeah. So I think the, the first thing is that every good restaurant company has got to be looking at their menu engineering reports every single month. Um, and nowadays it's more important than ever to be consistently looking at those. It used to be that 
Maybe he looked at them once a quarter or something like that. You have to look at them every month. You have to evaluate what the uh, what the impact of your LTOs have been in particular, because sometimes you put an LTO out that has great value proposition, uh, but it um, you know cannibalizes another another good item. So you have to be very very careful about your promotion. You have to be very careful about what's on the menu. Every day low price that the consumer loves is critical. You have to have that single sandwich for three fifty or four dollars or whatever that number is where the consumer says, what a great deal. Um, at the end of the visit, the consumer has to be able to say, wow, I can't believe that I got in and out of that restaurant for that price. And it was great. It was delicious. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, great service. And I think that's what the winners in the business do. They focus on, on training and people and they focus on keeping that value on the menu. And then they experiment with LTOs. And if LTOs kind of go in the wrong direction, i.e. steal share from, from some of your highly profitable items, you make the, the limited time offer that much more limited. Mm-hmm. Right, right. So, you know, you keep keep experimenting to find, uh, you know, sort of the right value equation to, you know, that resonates with customers while also not taking away from your 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 more highly profitable options. So you, you need a value, you know, a value offering that's actually going to generate traffic. Absolutely. And, and then in addition to that, you know, the consumer doesn't want to be just pigeonholed into, hey, I've got to go really basic, right? You have to have that on the menu in order to satisfy one of your constituent groups. But there's other constituent groups that want you to go really upscale. They want you to, to do a Wagyu burger or some sort of, you know, um, special high-end food that is, uh, that, that's really special to them, whether that's a sea bass or, you know, like I said, a, a specialty beef um, or specialty protein item. It might be $22 on the menu. You know, that's the other constituent that you don't want to forget. It's interesting that, you know, during our study, we see a tale of two cities in the, in the millennials. There are millennials that are sleeping on mom and dad's couch in the basement. And there are millennials that are making some really good money. So the, the differences in their behavior is profound. And you can't, you can't just look at it and say, my goodness, we're going to have to go low, low cost, low price. Um, and ignore the top end, you kind of have to be able to satisfy both sides of that. And that's why that menu engineering review is really critical. Right. I think that's a, that's a, that's an important point. When we talk about millennials, you know, we usually, I think a lot of people really talk about sort of the wealthier millennials or they're talking about, you know, the, you know, low income diners, but, you know, I mean, frankly, the, you know, the millennial generation does tend to be poorer than prior generations. And, and, um, but there is also this element, this population, uh, you know, this group that really does, they do have a lot of money and they're uni- using restaurants very, very differently. And, you know, you got to find a way to, you know, you, you got to find a way to please both groups. Yeah, that's true. And, and what's it, another thing that's, that's a, a real, and I think a positive twist from millennials and a lot of people will decry the fact that, uh, that this is the case, but they have a very strong social conscience and, mm-hmm. you know, the social conscience that, that millennials and I think Gen Z right behind them will also have is this, um, this desire to, to do right and to do good. And when we look at our survey, it comes out really clearly that when, when we ask about tipping, for example, boomers say, absolutely not. Do not include a tip in my check. I'll tip whatever I want to tip. Mm-hmm. Millennials are a little less, less, upset about that. And if you want to include the tip on the check, 
they think that's okay. And so they're more than willing to have a, uh, you know, to have a, a service charge added if the value holds. And in mm-hmm. addition to that, they're the most willing to, um, to believe that minimum wage should go to $15 an hour. You know, right. the, the, the Gen Xers and the boomers say, Hey, wait a minute. You know, it's supposed to be an entry level job. Uh, if you move everything to $15 an hour, what about the skilled positions that are actually, you know, pretty important in our, you know, in our, uh, economy such as healthcare workers, et cetera, that might only be at $15 an hour. You mean to tell me you should be able to wash dishes and make $15 an hour? Millennials think, yeah, you should. It's, you know, mm-hmm. that, that there's a, there's a, an opportunity there. So to that extent, um, it, it's a really interesting, um, group to watch, especially as they age and start to have children, uh, to see how their behaviors are going to change, especially, you know, when, when we get to another five years in and most of the millennials will have families. It'll be interesting to see if their uh, if their perspectives change. Yeah, that's um, yeah. Then the next few years, I think, and with that particular population group, because of they are entering that period in which they have children, and as a result, they spend a lot more on restaurants. Um, you know, it's, it, that's it, it. Really, is going to be interesting to see where that group where that group goes and and how their values change or, or shift over time. Because, uh, frankly, when you start having children, it's, you know, I mean, your, your, your values do change, your, your needs change, your, you know, the, the amount of money you have to spend really changes and, and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, given sort of the, you know, the, the, you know, how that group is and how they operate and, you know, it, it's, it's really going to be, I mean, it's, it, I think it's going to have a potentially fairly profound impact on the restaurant business, you know, overall, um, you know, given how big that generation is. Yeah. It's a big population group. And frankly, you know, the other thing about millennials and sort of, you know, shifting this back to, you know, restaurants and what do you do? The millennials have been so immersed in technology and frankly, Gen Z uh, will, will come into the restaurant industry, uh, or come into a, a major spending group, I should say, in, in a couple of years. And they have never had anything other than, you know, touchscreen technology. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously they use keyboards, but, you know, those, those things are, um, you know, are of the past. So if you're a restaurant company, you start to look at millennials and Gen Z and say, well, why not online ordering in, in the restaurant for that matter? Right. Why can't I use my phone to to order another beer or to flag down my server or to pay my in pay my bill at the end of the meal? Why can't I do all those things? They look at it and think they should be able to do everything on their phone. So, you know, I think that restaurant companies are just going to have to change to think that way. You know, whereas the the almighty POS and somebody standing behind that POS, you know, punching in the order. Um, pretty soon that's going to be um, a way of the past uh, and the way of the future will be that the consumer controls it in their hand. Right. Right. So let's, let's shift a little bit back and, and talk a little bit more about labor again. Is there, are there best, what are the best practices for, for a restaurant company to sort of fend off these or, or at least deal with these higher labor costs? I mean, are, are, yeah. are there strategies that they should put in place to, uh, to sort of ease these cost increases or to an extent, is that just something that they're going to have to deal with? Uh, in the, in the near term, it's just something they're going to have to deal with. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the restaurant companies that are sophisticated and they have sophisticated forecasting and scheduling approaches. 
will be better off and those that are not sophisticated in forecasting and scheduling will be in trouble. I think many restaurant companies these days are, are fairly sophisticated and are using uh, some forecasting algorithm, some um, ability to, to understand what their business should look like on a um, hour to hour, or sometimes on a 15 minute basis, uh, sometimes more granular than that, but usually that 15 minute, you know, times um, time window is enough. The, the next piece or sort of the next evolution that restaurant companies are going to have to, um, to go to our, our, you know, kiosks or any way for that consumer to avoid the need for servers. I, you know, I've worked with some restaurant companies that are interested in completely eliminating table service for, um, in favor of team, uh, table service in the restaurant, whereby the consumer, uh, you know, the guest, when they walk in, uh, they're given a QR code to scan and then they can order anything they want and the food will just get run to the table by whoever's available to run it. So instead of, uh, you know, a four table or a five table station in, in, uh, casual dining, maybe that becomes a 10 table station. You know, that is, that is something that, that restaurant companies are going to have to experiment with. And, um, that, that's going to be tricky and it's going to be hard, but the, the, it will be a way of the future. It's just a question of when. You know, so biting off more than you can chew too soon might be uh, might be a, a little bit of hit or miss. And then finally, the real question is, how can you automate the kitchen? What can you do in the back of house? And there's no easy answer there right now, right? I mean, most of the most of the work that is done in the kitchen is relatively skilled, right? I mean, the the, the labor that's in a a restaurant kitchen to execute a recipe consistently over and over again, you know, requires skilled labor today. Um, in the future, robotics will likely replace some human activity, but it's going to be a while. So in the near term, mm-hmm. you better get really good at managing your labor on a day-to-day basis, on an hour-to-hour basis, a shift basis. And then beyond that, um, you better have great general managers who motivate your teams, who keep your turnover reasonable and and are really good at training your your staff the, the role of the general manager has never been more important than it is right, right. now because of the labor issues. Right. Right. Yeah. I, um, I, in fact, I, I'm, I'm doing a story this week on, on Cooper's Hawk and they have, uh, they have a, a program now in which if you do enough during the course of a year to develop your staff, if you're a general manager and you, you do, you can earn points based on how you develop your staff to get promotions and move into higher ranked positions. And if you do well enough on that, you get a free BMW for three years. (laughs) And, um, yeah, so I, I mean, you know, so that sort of just goes right to the point that, um, you know, it's a very important position and especially, especially a dine-in restaurant, uh, a waitstaff restaurant, you have, I mean, that service has to be really good. And I've seen it over and over and over and over again. Restaurant companies that fail on the service front are going to lose business because there's just so much competition out there right now. I can go to another restaurant easily um, and if I'm, you know, that if, if my service at, at this other restaurant is bad. So, I mean, the, the onus on restaurant companies today is to make sure your staff, you're, you're able to get the, uh, you know, good employees, uh, cause they're increasingly hard to find. And then you have to keep them and, and continue to develop them. 
It's funny you mentioned that. I remember about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago now, Gene Lee stood in front of a group of uh, of restaurateurs at a, at a conference, and he said, "If a if a great restaurant candidate walks into your restaurant and you don't hire them, and they walk out of your restaurant and they walk to mine, I am going to hire them on the spot. We are going to put them into the process immediately. We are going to groom them. We are going to encourage them. We are going to try to make them." Darden employees for life. And if they choose to move on to become doctors or, you know, other professionals or go to college or do whatever they're going to do, we're going to make them advocates for our restaurant and so that they will send their friends and send their family to come eat with us, to come work with us. We're going to do everything we can to, to beat you in recruiting and retention. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's no secret, right? He said it in front of a group of restaurateurs and we just all looked at each other and said, yep, us too. <laughs> so the fight is on. Right. Right. And it's not just, it's not just waitstaff concepts either. I mean, I think no. if you think of, if you think of like, I, I mean, the best right now, easily the best performing restaurant chain in the country is Chick-fil-A and you go to that counter service restaurant and I would challenge you to find a better um uh, a, a better service model than what they have and, and it's nothing spectacular I mean they you know they'll bring that out to your table you'll they'll bring your food out to your table if you're eating in you know but I I, I mean I was there at eight o'clock one night and I, you know the the counter service person was just super polite uh, you know I, I I go, I've gone to McDonald's at eight o'clock at night on a relatively routine basis inside. And I've more than half of the time completely regretted the decision. And so it's no, (laughs) I mean, it's no secret that why Chick-fil-A is successful because you go in there and you're just having a really good experience all the way around. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because I'll tell you that, and and apologies to my friends at Chick-fil-A when they hear this, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I think Chick-fil-A does an exceptional job in selection and then in retention and also in training. And there's no magic, right? There's no secret sauce there. In fact, they'll even tell you what they do, but you have to out execute them. And that's, that's what they have done. They focused on executing inside of their four walls and executing on the selection and the training and retention. Now here's why I apologize to my Chick-fil-A friends. I tell people who have never heard of Chick-fil-A, you know, whether that be uh, people from outside of the United States or, uh, you know, my Yankee friends who have not been, you know, <laughs> not been south and, and seen a Chick-fil-A at every uh, every town they go to. I say, if you ever go into a Chick-fil-A and you wonder why they're so great, just go in, order some food, sit down at a table and, and you'll notice that at some point uh, somebody will walk around and check to see how you're doing, see if you want to refill on your 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 drink or whatever, and then tell them that your fries are cold. You know, it's really, it was, it was a good experience, but my fries were cold. It's like a seven alarm fire. I mean, everybody will come running to make sure that, you know, you have had a great experience. You'll get a new thing of fries. They'll be piping hot. You know, don't put them in your mouth right away because you'll burn your tongue They're You know, they will, they will be completely attentive to every move that 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 you make as a guest and uh, you know that kind of training uh it doesn't happen just by itself it it takes a concerted effort and i also think that they do a great job of of their selection right they pick people that have a desire to want to do uh, want to do good and want to do right 
Um, but it's a, uh, man, it's a, it's a great system, truly a great system. Sorry right, for the, yeah. sorry for costing you a bunch of fries, Dan Kathy. Apologies. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, I, I went there one time, uh, late at night and with my family and I ordered a spicy chicken sandwich and it came late and, um, the manager was like super apologetic. I, I walked out of the door with like a couple of coupons and, um, for, for free chicken sandwiches and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, it's, you know, I, again, I've, you know, been to other fast food restaurants and you don't, you know, I don't get anywhere near that level of attention. And it's, you know, in a, in a, in a QSR, I mean, that really delights you as a customer um, because you don't go in expecting that. And it, so, I mean, honestly, it's not really rocket surgery, what they're doing. It's, it's just, they are serving the customer very, very well. And, um, and it, you know, I mean, their their five year compound annual growth rate is in fifteen percent range, which is ridiculous for how how big they are. Yeah, and you know, it's funny because you talk about execution, and we just we just brought that up as sort of a you know that being a secret sauce that hasn't changed forever, Jonathan. I mean, my mm-hmm. goodness, that's been a hallmark and a cornerstone of our industry forever. And the best executing restaurant companies just seem to just crush everybody else, even if they're legacy brands, they just do better. And, and what's, you know, I think that when I look at the, the brands that execute really, really well, it's the ones who are just psychotic about their spec and about mm-hmm. wanting that product to be right. And, you know, it, it just needs to start there. I know a bunch of restaurant companies that, you know, they get into a, a situation where they're looking at, um, at short-term cash flow needs. And unfortunately, short-term cash flow needs often result in long-term depletion of, of value because you, know, you focus in on cutting costs, you focus in on, uh, on doing some emergency changes that, that do not elongate the virtuous cycle. And if you want to elongate the virtuous cycle, the first thing you attack is you attack your, um, your team building and your labor and your, uh, your selection and recruiting and, and um, retention efforts while you cut costs smartly. Um, mm-hmm. There is a turnaround playbook that works and there is a turnaround playbook uh, that will work in the short term and be long term devastating to a brand. Yeah. And I think sometimes that uh, long term comes faster than you think. I think uh, a perfect <laughs> example of this is is Kona Grill, um, which you could see sort of their downfall happen in just a couple of short years. They got you know, they started losing money in 2017. They panicked in 2018 and cut the heck out of costs. And, and same store sales just absolutely plunged. Um, you know, I've yeah, seen this. And, and they didn't have enough restaurant or a strong enough balance sheet to withstand that. So, right. you know, the, the ability to, you know, the ability to be smart and pare back on units or something along those lines. If you don't have critical mass, you're not going to be able to do that. You've got to be, it's house to house, hand to hand combat on a daily basis. And the minute that you get into that downward cycle, if you don't arrest it, uh, you know, I have a, I have a phrase that I like to use and that is the virtuous cycle always requires fuel, but the death spiral just needs gravity. All you have to do is stop paddling. Yeah. 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 It's, um, yeah. I mean, I I think another example that we had recently was, uh, we, you know, uh, uh, we had Lyle take on this podcast a couple of months ago and 
one of the things that he was fairly uh, blunt about was, you know, talking about um, in a previous management's decision to shift away from a half price wings promotion when chicken wing prices spiked. And Mm -hmm. that really, you know, customers just stopped going because they really liked that promotion. It was a very popular uh, promotion every Tuesday that they had had for a long time. And, you know, if you follow chicken wing prices at all, you know that those spikes are always temporary and they are automatically followed by a, a dramatic reduction because companies panic and freak out and that sort of thing. You know, so if you make decisions on, uh, you know, short term decisions, uh, to, uh, you know, meet temporary, uh, margin challenges, you know, you can end up paying a, a pretty big long term price for it. Yeah, that goes back to my earlier conversation about yeah. or comment about the the menu engineering. If you're not staying on top of that, you run the risk of making a, a major mistake by cutting something off the menu, or um, or worse yet, you know, promoting something that you don't need to promote. Um, and when it comes to chicken wings and, and things like that, you know, I, I heard once, I heard I heard years ago that from gestation to slaughter. The time frame for chicken is something along the lines of 90 days. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I mean, you're, mm-hmm. you know, to that extent, if you're facing a chicken issue, um, you know, try to weather that storm because <laughs> you're probably going to be able to, to see a correction in the market, you know, within a short enough period of time if you mm-hmm. can weather it. Yeah. So if I'm a restaurant operator and I want to build sort of a, you know, I want to take a look at, you know, I want to follow the example of a Darden, um, which is another great example of a company that has used quality service and, and, and product to, to build sales and, and, or Chick-fil-A on the, on the QSR end. How do I do that as an operator to build that culture of that, that workforce culture to ensure that I'm providing this kind of quality service, uh, at all of my locations? Yeah, great question. So the first thing is you've got to have great general managers, but the reality is on a, in an organization of any scale or any size, particularly something like the size of Darden, it, you, you can't manage the GM position from corporate. So the culture of service, the culture of execution starts at the top and then it works its way down. And where you have your leverage point is in your multi-unit manager, that, that district operator or area director, whatever they want to call them. Those guys are huge. They're, they're so critical to the organization because when they're good, they generally have a bunch of good GMs and the bunch of good GMs have great performing stores and you keep going from there. You, you leverage it from the, uh, from the, the regional manager, the regional director position and, um, that you focus in on your general manager. That means you have to have a really great comp plan. And that means that you really have to focus in on, on execution and spec. Uh, the, you, you want to make sure that if you're, regional manager walks into the restaurant, um, that, that they will be thrilled with the way that the restaurant is being operated. Clean, well executed, the recipes are right, the food is coming out of the kitchen hot, the staff is friendly, and that doesn't happen by accident. It happens because you have great GMs. The thing you don't want to have happen is the, re- the regional manager coming into the restaurant, sitting down with the GM reviewing financials and saying, Great job on financials. Your food cost is in line. Your labor's in line. Um, and meanwhile, they're sitting in a dirty restaurant with surly service and, and food that doesn't come out of the kitchen for 25 minutes. That's the kiss of death. Right. Exactly. 
Sir, uh, this was fantastic. I really appreciate you uh, having uh, you uh, joining and, and taking the time out this week to be on the podcast. Oh my goodness, John! It's my pleasure. I, I I've been wanting to to uh, to jump on the the phone with you and just have a a chat for a long time. But to be able to do it on the podcast is even a greater honor. So thanks very much for having me. I've been spending a lot of time writing about the burger chain Steak and Shake. Recently, the company said that it closed forty four locations temporarily. It previously said that the company was closing stores for a time to get ready for franchisees that would theoretically take the stores over as part of a major refranchising effort. But it just so happens that the recent closures came after the a quarter in which the company's same-store sales declined 7.9%. That was the 10th straight such down quarter. We've covered a lot of refranchisings over the years, and we have never seen one that was preceded by a massive closure of the sold restaurants. Then again, we haven't seen a refranchising quite like the one Steak and Shake is undertaking. It is selling the locations to qualified operators for $10,000, splitting the profits and requiring them to pay a royalty. Still, if that plan is to succeed, it would probably be better to keep the store open rather than require those incoming operators to get the store back online. And that's it for this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, which, as always, was edited by Christine Cawthon. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. Contributors to this podcast include Peter Romeo, Sarah Rushworth, Pat Colby, and Heather Lally. You can find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash podcast. You can also find them on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host and podcast producer and the executive editor of Restaurant Business Magazine. Thank you for listening.